This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, Jim Hightower, the Tom Hartman Program, The Daily Show, The Green News Report, The Majority Report, The Onion Radio News, and a classic clip from The Al Franken Show. Did you know that Al Franken used to have a radio show? It was brilliant. So, Bobby, we had to take a break, but you were explaining the two laws that have existed uh, through the ages in terms of property, and uh, one of them being uh, the private property nuisance laws. You can't do something that's going to impair the enjoyment or the uh, use of other or interfere with the enjoyment or use of other people's property uh, in terms of private property and the notion of public property, ancient laws that have uh, been passed down uh, through Rome in response to uh, what happened prior to the Dark Ages in Europe, and and so uh, where are those we are uh, that's called that second group is called the public trust doctrine, and it protects the commons, the publicly owned lands. And what I was saying that King John in England began privatizing the commons, and this always happens in tyrannies. And he privatized the fisheries and sold monopolies, and and privatized the rivers of England, and uh, so you couldn't navigate on them without paying a toll to a rich person. This caused the public to rise up. You couldn't hunt the deer. And they confronted King John at the Battle of Runnymede, and they forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which was the beginning of constitutional democracy on this planet. And the Magna Carta was the birthplace of all of our civil rights, all the rights in the Bill of Rights, including habeas corpus and, you know, all of these other rights. But... But it also, in addition, had two chapters on protection of the commons, of the air, the water, the wildlife, the fisheries, the public lands, that they belong to the people, that a ruler could not interfere with their, with their use and enjoyment. Those laws descended to the people of the states when we had the revolution in our country, and those rights, and the constitution of every state basically says the water and the air of the state belong to the people. Everybody has a right to use them. Nobody can use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and enjoyment by others. So this is ancient law. And a lot of times I'll sit at Sam, I'll sit across the table from a polluter who says, oh, it's not fair for you to, you know, to impose these laws on us. You know, these were invented by a bunch of hippies after Earth Day. And, you know, we're having trouble complying with them. But in fact, these laws, the protection of the environment have existed since the beginning of government. And in fact, in the 1600s, there was a Clean Air Act in England that made it illegal to burn coal in stoves in London, and it was a capital crime, and people were executed for it. So, you know, these laws have been around forever. You've never been able to use your property in a way that pollutes. Pollution has always been illegal. And after Earth Day 19, you know, a lot of these laws were eroded by corruption and, and by compliant legislatures at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And in Earth Day 1970, the largest demonstration in American history, 20 million Americans, 10% of our population came out onto the street and said, we want those laws back. And it frightened the politicians, Republicans and Democrats. And Nixon created EPA. Signed, there are 28 laws were passed over the next 10 years that protect our air, water, endangered species, food safety, etc. Wetlands, aquifers, beaches, but all those laws weren't new laws. They were simply the recodification of ancient laws that had existed for thousands of years. And, you know, today, when you hear libertarians talk, you know, the followers of Rand Paul who say everything should be 
free market capitalism. Well, I agree. I really believe that the free market works when it is harnessed to a social purpose. There's no such thing as a, you know, the free market is a tool. You know, it's not. It's like a hammer. You don't worship a hammer. You use it to build something that's good for your children. And the same, the free market is the most powerful economic engine ever created or ever devised, but it has to be harnessed to a social purpose. Otherwise, it just creates inexorably oligarchy and plutocracy. And so you have to say, okay, what kind of society do we want? Let's make market rules to help us get there as efficiently and effectively as we can. But there's one place where the market does not work, and this is the big gap in libertarian philosophy. It does not work in the commons, because in the commons, the air, the water, if you can just use the commons to dump your waste, you're going to do that, or if you can catch every fish in the ocean, it's your individual economic incentive to catch the last fish and to dump all of your garbage into the water, the air, the public, because then the public pays for your production rather than you pay, and there is no market. And so what you have to have, the one of the primary roles of government is to regulate behavior in the commons to make sure that there is a sustainable yield. Otherwise, there is an economic rule, which is called tragedy of the commons. And what it means is if you just let the marketplace run free on the commons, that it will inexorably destroy the commons. That you, you know, the, and in the Boston common, if everybody could put their cow on it, the, the Boston common would be overgrazed within a, a year and there would be none left for anybody. So you have to say, you have to regulate how many cows you can allow, how many cows each family gets there, and, you know, how many fish can you catch in the ocean. How is that done, um, and how much pollution you can put in the air? All and of these is, things have to be regulated by government, and that is the biggest gap in libertarian philosophy. And it's the one thing that the Pauls, Rand, and you know, and his son don't seem to understand is that you know, you environmental laws are well, not. Well, I got to say this, Robbie. They they may not understand it, but certainly I think those big industries that are uh, uh, that uh, exercise their will and use the commons as their dumping ground, use the commons as a way to basically shift that cost to the rest of us. They understand it. I think they just don't like it. in Washington is this. We have too many 5-watt bulbs sitting in 100-watt sockets. Any doubt about this was erased in July when Tea Party ravers in the House joined old-school right-wing ranters to pass a light bulb bill. This was the culmination of a loopy crusade by the billionaire Koch brothers to stop the spread of energy-efficient light bulbs. Say what? Yes, Coke front groups drummed up a non-issue by howling that big government is telling us what kind of light bulbs we can buy. 
Sure enough, an assortment of coquetted Congress critters joined the silly circus by trying to undo the rather useful government effort to stimulate production of better bulbs. They rallied round Thomas Edison's old 100-watt energy gulper, claiming that nanny state Democrats had banned Edison's marvel, requiring that incandescent bulbs be replaced by the cold light of fluorescent bulbs. This whole crusade is hogwash. There is no ban on incandescent bulbs, just a new standard for all bulbs to consume less energy. And this standard was not set by Democrats, but by a Republican-sponsored law signed in 2007 by George W. Bush. Also, the descendants of Edison say that he would support such an advance. Technology changes, they say. Embrace it. And guess who was behind passage of the new energy efficiency mandate? Light bulb makers. Everyone supported it, says a top Phillips executive, adding that the law produced a major surge in innovation by the industry. Only four years after the law passed, Phillips, GE, and Sylvania all are ready to market incandescent bulbs that meet the higher efficiency standards while saving money for consumers. This is Jim Hightower saying, Did I mention that the Koch brothers are in the dirty energy business and that they profit when you have to use more of it to light your house? Maggie Fox is on the line with us. She is the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project. ClimaterealityProject.org is the website. And Maggie, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Tell us, what is the Climate Reality Project? Well, it's an organization founded and chaired by Al Gore and devoted exclusively to focusing on waking people up and engaging in the solutions to solve the climate crisis. You know, it saddens me to hear that in, and uh, not even to hear, for us to be having this conversation in a way, because aren't we pretty much the only developed country in the world where you have to wake people up to this? Well, not entirely. We're we're one of three, <laughs> so we aren't. We well, are there two other countries that have the, politics corrupted by big money? Are Australia and the United Kingdom? But I would I say see. that the denier industry in the United States is the best funded and the most focused. Right, and and so uh, yeah, to say the very least. And yet, nonetheless, the message is starting to get through. Yes, it is. Um, we're hosting an event this week, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Central. We're hosting an event 24 hours of reality in which we are focusing through a new slide presentation that Al has prepared on extreme weather events that have occurred just in the last year all around the world, including in the United States where we've seen you know, the fires in Texas and the incredible heat waves all through the United States, the Midwestern floods, you know, Hurricane Irene. To date, just uh, in September of this year, we've we've amassed a bill of over a million dollar billion dollars in infrastructure damage just from extreme weather events, and that's in the U.S. alone. When you look around the rest of the world in the last year, I don't even have the number yet for the kind of dollars it's costing us 
to keep denying the existence of climate change. Uh, the last time, I've, I've pretty much stopped debating these guys, but Mark Morano used to come on our show a lot two, three, four years ago and, and debate right. climate change with me. Right. And um, the statistic that I, or the thing that I would find would always pretty much stop him or the other guys cold in their tracks was when Swiss Re, which is the uh, right. company based out of Switzerland, that re that the basically, basically it's reinvestment. They basically back or reinsurance rather. They basically back up insurance companies. So if if an insurance company has uh, you know a uh, hundred billion dollars worth of policies out there and they've got you know five billion dollars in the bank, if a genuine disaster happens, they're wiped out. And so they buy insurance that they themselves don't get wiped out. And for the companies that were doing insurance on things like floods and, and tornadoes and, you know, these, these kinds of extreme weather events, Swiss Re was just starting to jack up their prices like crazy because they were just coming right out and saying, and this was years ago, coming right out and saying. statement after public statement that yeah. climate change is happening, that it's affecting their business and the and the world and that denial is not an option and they are not denying it. They've yeah. changed their entire business practices as a result. Well, I was wondering, it's been, as I said, it's been a few years since I really, you know, got into that because I had to to, to do, debate somebody who was, you know, pretty knowledgeable or whatever, you know, had a lot of numbers and things to throw at me. Right. What is the status of, of the business side of this, the and, and and the human side of this, you know, the actual cost. There, obviously, there are people who say, "Well, you know, we're building more along the seacoast. We never should have done that." Or buildings are more expensive. There's been inflation. This goes way beyond that. Well, we actually haven't. I don't know the exact cost, but I can tell you that the, the, the most important phenomena that exists in anticipation of our event and the quarterly events that we are beginning with this one tomorrow night is that there's this odd disconnect between business behavior around the world and individual behavior around the world and how our governments are behaving. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. You see individuals, even those that are somewhat skeptical, are still making decisions around vehicles and personal consumer choices. Businesses are doing quite impressive sustainability plans, global businesses, community businesses, you know, multi-state businesses, accepting climate change while we live in a political environment of denial. So that's supposed to bad news and the good news. The yeah. bad news is that inculcated in our cultures all around the world is an understanding that this change is happening. But we have an infrastructure of denial feeding doubt and denial and stopping our political leaders from taking the kind of policy changes that we need to do. So we've created this event. It starts tomorrow night uh, and go on our website, www.climaterealityproject.org and tune in because we're actually doing 24 hours of reality starting in Mexico City at 7 p.m. Central and moving westward every hour on the hour is a different country making a presentation around extreme weather events both in that country and a core slideshow that Al created about extreme weather events that are occurring all over the world. It ends in New York at 7 p.m. on the night of the 15th, Al's presentation. He will not only give the slideshow, but he will also do a wrap-up of all the 23 hours prior to that. He'll be awake for all 24 hours. Yikes. 
Yes, as will most of us. Well, it's pretty exciting because in each one of these countries, Tom, a very remarkable individual has stepped up to pull together an event that we will be live streaming and filming. But it's a it's a real live event in that country. Uh, my, I guess today my most inspirational moment is of a a young man in Pakistan who was trained by Al and on the Inconvenient Truth slideshow. He's going back to his home village and pulling together people who are survivors of the intense Pakistani floods in 2010, many of whom are still displaced, a situation similar to Haiti where mm-hmm. the massive shifts that occurred in that country are so profound that here we are a year later and not much has changed. Right. Pulling together survivors of the flood and he reached out to the mobile phone company in Pakistan and, and they've agreed to do a million text messages to individuals who have accounts with them who actually have the ability to have a computer link. So they will sign up with us in Pakistan. I mean, that's almost justification alone for doing this event. Just think about that message resonating all throughout Pakistan. And we have people in London and in Auckland and in Canberra, the parliament in Australia. There was a carbon legislation introduced yesterday and a real chance that the first carbon legislation in the world will pass in Australia by the end of this year. Mm -hmm. Um, We have presenters... uh, in the archipelago north of um, Victoria that's going underwater as a result of sea level rise with some of the native um, people who live there and who will lose their homeland. Uh, the same will be true further north at Kutzebu. There will be in a long house uh, in an Inuit village where those villagers were, are already looking for a new home because sea level rise has already begun inundated some of the most central parts of the village. You know, we ha- we're in Iceland where one of the presenters is a trained musician who works on sustainability and will be speaking in Icelandic. Mm-hmm. Um, in Turkey, it'll be an individual who uh, works on an online directory for sustainable choices. And so when you think about this, when you think about these individuals and you think about the businesses all over the world, our job is to stand up to the denial and the doubt and move government policy while still encouraging individuals to make those important personal decisions that they can and should be making. What a beautiful place I have found in this place that is circling all around the sun. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. begin tonight with Barack Obama. You know how you hate Barack Obama? Not disappointed. Not wish he handled certain issues in one way or another or met your ridiculous expectations in another. But hate him! Just really want to nail him. You had a good run on the birth certificate thing, but turns out he had one. 
You worked real hard on the secret Muslim who will hand over our nation to the caliphate route. Then he went out and killed Osama bin Laden. <laughs> Acorn, Reverend Wright, Bill Ayers, Tony Rensko, high unemployment, two to three wars, and the guy's still hanging around 40% approval. <laughs> well, for those of you who have lost hope, I say Merry Christmas. <laughs> and welcome to our new segment. That custom-tailored Obama scandal you ordered is finally here. I'll let the news media fill you in. The widening scandal involving a company highly touted by the White House. The centerpiece of President Obama's pitch to the American people, the creation of more green jobs. A company that's now declared bankruptcy, laid off all 1,100 of its workers, and was raided by the FBI last week. Companies come and go all the time, even ones involved in cutting-edge environmental technology. It's not like the American people loaned this company a half a billion dollars, and the company's name sounds like one of those weird dystopian planets Captain Kirk always found himself on. You know, the ones that were just like Earth, only all the women wear orange. The California solar panel company Solyndra, which received a major loan from the federal government only to collapse. Solyndra received $535 million in federal loan guarantees to expand production of cutting-edge solar panels. Kirk to Enterprise. <laughs> How much money did we give those idiots? Spock, why didn't you warn me? Terrible Captain Kirk <laughs> Sorry, Paul. All right, fine. So a solar panel company that we gave $500 million to collapsed. $500 million is only 1.3% of the money given out by the government's green energy program. Most of the other companies that benefited from that money, solar, wind, nuclear, they're doing fine. In truth, this scandal would only be exploitable if the president had made this one particular company the poster child for the program. If he had, let's say, toured the Solyndra facilities or <laughs> met with the CEO or praised its cutting-edge ingenuity in a speech that, in retrospect, will seem ill-advised. The true engine of economic growth will always be companies like Solyndra. It's here that companies like Solyndra are leading the way toward a brighter and more prosperous future. Generations from now, when intelligent apes rule over this land, only two artifacts of our civilization will remain, half the Statue of Liberty and this beautiful factory, which uh, will still be humming along and employing as many as 1,100 apes. So does the failure of one company discredit the entire idea of a green energy economy? Of course not. But if in, let's say, 1936, you spoke about the growing importance of air travel in front of, I don't know, the Hindenburg, <laughs> you'd be right about the future of air travel, but you'd still be on fire. Oh, the stupidity. The administration! Maybe their hearts are in the right place, and they just bet on the wrong horse. It's not like there's any damning evidence they knew in advance that this horse was, in fact, a donkey. 
House Republican investigators have unearthed emails reviewed by NBC, which reveal repeated warnings by government staffers about the loan. This deal is not ready for prime time. Then days before final approval, a warning that one model showed the project would run out of cash in September 2011. Burn on you, Solyndra went out of business. September 6, 2011. <laughs> on the plus side, how about a little something for faceless bureaucrats? <laughs> I almost hesitate to ask this, but is there any uh, formulation of the Solyndra business model that would perhaps paint this in even more stark ways, the foolishness of our investment? Some financial analysts who study the industry say Solyndra's business plan to build solar panels was fatally flawed from the beginning. Their price was over $6 a watt to produce the product. Um, they were selling it at about $3. But when you looked at the numbers, it just didn't work. I wonder if that's why my business, Johnny's $10 bill, get one free, buy one emporium, didn't work because I had plenty of volume. You know, stories about incompetence in government are only going to get you so far, though. For this to truly become a weapons-grade political fodder, you're going to need incompetence with more than just a whiff of sinister cronyism. According to White House logs, one of Solyndra's principal investors, George Kaiser, who was a big Obama fundraiser, visited the White House at least four times before the loan's final approval to see aides including Valerie Jarrett and Peter Rouse. You know, I, I rarely use this valuable time on Comedy Central for blatant public service announcement, but if I may, Fox News, call your doctor, because the erection you currently have is going to last longer than four hours. Wow. Just how bad is this? Just how bad is this for the administration? You know how whenever there's a scandal, Congress holds a hearing to investigate the matter, but they usually just prove themselves to be clueless grandstanders? Watch Congressman Brian Bilbray, our California, lay some serious solar smackdown on the executive director of the Department of Energy's loan program. Were you informed that there's been more false starts and more failures in thin film than any other form of photovoltaic? Um, production. Were you aware that as we talk about China, that China has concentrated almost extensively in polycrystal technology and avoid thin film? At long last, have you no calculation of the variability of solar flares and the photosynthetic algorithm? <laughs> Sir. <laughs> I have no idea what the f that congressman from California is talking about, but here's the thing. He does. <laughs> Bill Break 2012! Dear Lord, in a situation like this, who will have the last word? The most ironic word. Words that were perhaps spoken via video chat on the occasion of the groundbreaking of Solyndra's now shuttered plant. Once your facility opens, there will be about 1,000 permanent new jobs here at Solyndra and in the surrounding business community, and hundreds more to install your growing output of solar panels throughout the country. It's important. It's important because these jobs are going to be permanent jobs. You know, Joe, I hate to say this, but there's really no such thing as a permanent job.
today's highs, low 100s, and a lot of 100s ahead of us right through the weekend. The record extremes of 2011 do continue to break records. As we said earlier, Oklahoma over the weekend broke its record for the highest number of days over 100 degrees. It's part of a double whammy with a record drought. But don't tell that to Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, who still believes that the science underlying climate change is a global conspiracy. He has repeated it over and over again. He is the king of the deniers. Here's what he loves to say. The notion that man-made gases cause global warming is probably the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. I would suggest the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the people of Oklahoma is James Inhofe. And you know, it's not just Oklahoma. This week, Las Vegas broke its own record for the hottest July on record and its hottest temperatures ever recorded. And it's not just the United States. For the second year in a row, Asia is seeing record high temperatures as well. And not just run-of-the-mill heat waves. Asia, for the second year in a row, is seeing some of the hottest temperatures ever recorded on Earth. Yes, ever recorded on Earth, with temperatures above 127 degrees. And we should also point out that the six hottest undisputed temperature records ever measured in Asia have all occurred in just the last two years. And it's not just seasonally high temperatures because it's summer. A new study in the journal Science confirms that animals and plants are migrating to higher latitudes as their habitats show increased signs of warming. They're migrating, plants and animals, at two to three times faster than they were in the last study that measured this back in 2003. Apparently, plants and animals do not watch Fox News or listen to Senator Inhofe. Indeed. Climate science has also opened a rift, or an opportunity, depending on how you look at it, for the Republican presidential candidates for the 2012 election. On Sunday, John Huntsman, former governor of Utah, finally got the major news networks to give him an interview after he slammed Texas Governor Rick Perry's statements last week that climate science is unproven and scientists have manipulated the data. Here is Huntsman on ABC's This Week. When we take a position that basically runs counter to what 98 of 100 climate scientists have said, what the National Academy of Science, uh, Sciences has said uh, about what is causing climate change and man's contribution to it, I think we find ourselves on the wrong side of science and therefore in a losing position. But Huntsman isn't the only Republican to attempt to use climate science to differentiate himself from the crowd. New Jersey's governor, Chris Christie, is not running for president yet, but he took the opportunity this week to reiterate his acceptance of the scientific evidence. Here he is at a press conference back in May. When you have over 90% of the world's scientists who have studied this stating that climate change is occurring and that humans play a contributing role, it's time to defer to the experts. Like Huntsman, he accepts the scientific evidence, but he says it's too expensive to do anything about it, which to me is about the same as being a denier. Arrests continue at the White House oil pipeline protest. More than 160 people have been arrested since Saturday at a peaceful protest in front of the White House to demand that President Obama deny approval of the proposed Keystone XL oil pipeline. Organized by TarSandsAction.org, the protesters say that the risk to the nation's farmland and water supply from potential pipeline spills is too great. And speaking of pipelines and oil spills, remember that oil spill a month ago on the Yellowstone River in Montana from a Pipeline. ExxonMobil says the cost of cleaning up those 40,000 gallons of crude oil will cost an estimated $42.6 million. Be my thoughts of flowers, true. The ocean storm may bury me.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Back in March, we report on the uh, primary and the initial findings by this uh, California Berkeley physicist, a guy named uh, Robert uh, Richard uh, Mueller. I don't know if it's Mueller or Mueller. Uh, and he has long time been a uh, contrarian and also very skeptical on the so-called conventional wisdom about climate change. He always thought that the modeling was wrong that the earth, uh, there was no conclusive proof that the earth was warming. And he came, became sort of a darling of the flat earther group, the climate change denialists. And in 2010, to prove that this whole global warming thing was a bunch of bunk, he set up uh, the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project best. To show the world that uh, you're not doing climate uh, analysis properly, let me show you uh, the way to do it, which will undoubtedly prove that there is no uh, global climate change. And uh, one of his big funders was a couple of brothers who were just interested in spreading the truth. Uh, the Koch brothers, through their Koch Foundation. They gave Best a $150,000 grant. They could run the show for a long time on $150,000. And back in March, and we reported on this at the time, Mueller testified to Congress. He said his preliminary findings were actually showing that um, uh, global temperatures are actually going up. <laughs> And so yesterday, or I guess I should say on Thursday of last week, best, the Berkeley Earth surface temperature, and what better place, right, Berkeley? Even a Berkeley man, they know that the temperature's not getting warmer. Uh, the, the Earth isn't getting warmer. Well, yesterday, uh, best confirmed that these and uh, other results are in the, in the first set of published papers about land temperatures. And from Kevin Dromey breaks down exactly what they found. The Earth is indeed getting warmer. Surprise, surprise. Global average land temperatures have risen 0.91 degrees Celsius over the past 50 years. And this is, quote, on the high end of the existing range of reconstructions. Hey, what happened? It turns out this guy found... Not only did he find that the data showing that the Earth is warming is correct, that it may be slightly conservative in how much it's been warming. The rate of increase on land is actually accelerating. 
So it's warming at a faster pace than it has over the uh, the rest of the 20th century. The last 40 years, it's the pace has increased. Uh, the first half of the 20th century, it was going slower. In fact, in the uh, for the entire century, the planet warmed at 0.73 degrees Celsius per century. But over the last 40 years, it was nearly four times that rate. So it's speeding up significantly. Warming has not abated since 1998. This is all from a Koch Brothers global climate change denialing study. In announcing uh, the results, Mueller said, our biggest surprise was that the new results agreed so closely with the warming values published previously by other teams in the U.S. and O.K. But at least it's going to be sunny all year round in New York. Just make sure you have a boat if you're in New York City. Uh, because... Ocean waters tend to rise when the ice caps melt. Uh, there will be more data released soon on, on what's happening with the oceans in terms of their warming. And it's, it's hilarious to watch the right-wingers back off this. One big climate denialist uh, blogger, Anthony Watts, who is, of course, a meteorologist and a blogger who uh, doubts that greenhouse gases contribute to warming, back in March was very excited about Mueller's group. I'm prepared to accept whatever result they produce, even if it proves my uh, premise wrong. Well, on Thursday... Hey, what happened? He said he can't, uh, uh, cannot subscribe to the group's conclusions because they haven't been peer-reviewed yet. Except for all the other peers have already said this information we already confirm. Just classic. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm.
It's the Onion Radio News. New anger-powered cars may revolutionize the way we drive. This is Doyle Redland reporting. With gas prices approaching $2 per gallon in some areas and gridlock on the rise, Detroit's three major automakers are stepping up development of their newest brainchild, the anger-powered car. Robert A. Lutz is vice chairman of General Motors. The engine will burn clean, white-hot hatred and will release few harmful byproducts into the atmosphere. Bad vibes and a small amount of water vapor will combine to be released in the form of human spittle. GM is currently developing two anger-powered cars, the entry-level Chevy Tantrum and the larger, pricier Buick Umbridge, while Daimler Chrysler hopes to unveil its new pickup, the Dodge Ramit, late next year. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. First, I wanted to bring in Dr. Doug Inkley, who is the senior scientist with the National Wildlife Federation, the National Wildlife Federation, nwf.org, and uh, the Twitter is at NWF. Uh, Dr. Inkley, welcome to the program. Hello, Tom. Great to have you with us. Um, there is a new, well, we've been hearing for a couple of weeks now, actually, and we've had several people on this program, one who was a pilot who flew over it, another who was, who was uh, in a boat out in the Gulf. That there appear to be uh, spills coming out of the area where the Macondo well was, the the uh, the, the BP well that, that blew up and and uh, murdered eleven men, um, uh, and not to mention a, a whole ecosystem. But apparently, that's not the end of the story. In fact, that's not even the beginning of it. Yes, that's right. In fact, we had uh, a boat out there on Friday taking samples of the oil that's still being found in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a variety of sources, unfortunately, for where oil is coming from in the Gulf of Mexico. There's still a lot of wrecked equipment on the ground at the, at the bottom of the ocean, uh, at the site of the Macondo well. Uh, there is a lot of uh, drilling that occurs in that area and a lot of pipelines, and some of it is chronically leaking. We know that. That's what the National Wildlife Federation was out there Friday for, to look for some of the oil, take some samples of it, to try to determine what its source was. There are also natural seepages which occur, but they're much smaller uh, they release much less oil than the spills that have been occurring, such as last year with the huge BP Gulf oil spill, the largest in our nation's history. Right. So what what do Americans need to know about the fact that these uh, there's all these miles and miles and miles of pipeline and all, uh, many, many wells there in the Gulf of Mexico and that some of them are leaking uh, chronically, uh, to use your phrase. Well, what can be done about it? What do people know, need to know about it? I think what people need to know is that as it stands right now, our oil and gas drilling regulations are not tight enough to prevent accidents like this BP oil spill from occurring. And since that time on land, we've had a number of oil spills. The Enbridge oil spill in Michigan last year. Uh, we had the Yellowstone River oil spill several months ago. Uh, these things continue, and obviously the regulations are not tight enough. Let me give you an example of why. When the Yellowstone River oil spill occurred, there was suspicions that there might be a problem there, so the regulator stepped in and the pipeline was temporarily closed down. After they determined that all federal regulations were being met, the pipeline reopened and subsequently the spill occurred. Clearly, the regulations that exist today are not 
strong enough to prevent things like this from happening. So what the American people need to support and what Congress needs to do is support stronger oil and gas regulations. Congress has taken no action on that since <laughs> the oil spill uh, last year uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. So what specifically in those oil and gas regulations that should be stronger are you, are, are you and or the National Wildlife um, Federation well, there's a number of things, and I don't want to get into the technical details because it's quite complex, but one of the things that's not occurring right now is when there's a spill, the first responders on the scene, they really don't know what was spilled. They don't know what type of oil was in the pipeline. They don't know anything about it. And a lot of times chemicals are added to the oil to help it flow. Oil from different places has different characteristics. So when this Yellowstone spill occurred, Yellowstone River spill occurred this summer, the first responders really didn't know what they were dealing with. So one of the first things that has to happen is a right to know so that people know what they're dealing with. So we're talking about transparency on the part of the corporations that are doing the drilling. Transparency so that the first responders and the people that are living near these pipelines know what's going through the pipelines for their own safety and well-being. That just seems like common sense. Uh, you know, I, I, was that at, at one time part of the law? Was that part of the uh, EPA or other regulations? Or has that never been part of the law? I'm not aware that that's ever been a part of the regulations. Uh, one of the problems that we're having now is some of the tar sands uh, oil that is coming down from Canada. It's much more corrosive than the oil that uh, used to be pumped. And so the problem is, is that it could make uh, these pipelines more vulnerable to leaks and, and spills and things of this type. So it is important to know what is being piped in these so that you can put in place the proper safety regulations. Right. And what's being done to that end? Well, not enough, uh, clearly. Uh, again, nothing has changed uh, in the last year since the BP oil spill. Congress hasn't taken any action. I'm concerned that they haven't taken any action to strengthen the oil and gas drilling regulations, and also they have not taken any action that would, in fact, put in place the, the fines that BP pays for the Gulf oil spill to put that back into the Gulf of Mexico for restoration. Right now, it goes elsewhere. It would not go back into the Gulf of Mexico. Where's the elsewhere? It's, it's just going into the federal treasury? I believe so. That's, that's right. Oh, that's nuts. So what we need to do is, is BP, you know, had a lot of impact on that Gulf Coast ecosystem. The fines that they pay, it's right for Congress to dedicate those fines under the Clean Water Act back into the Gulf of Mexico for restoration. That needs to happen. There's right. a hearing to mark up a bill uh, in the Senate later this week on Wednesday, and it's a bipartisan bill supported by a number of senators that would actually dedicate the, the funds from their fines uh, to Gulf Coast restoration, and we're strongly supportive of that. Why is it that we see uh, Republicans like Bobby Jindal and Democrats like Blanche Lincoln, um, you know, who represent, or Mary Landrieu, who represent Gulf Coast states, consistently working on the side of the oil companies as opposed to on the side of the of the uh, of the environment in that region and the people who make their living as part of that environment, the small you know shrimpers and 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 fishermen and things like that. Well, it's very clear that oil and gas is a tremendous economic driver for the communities uh, down in Louisiana and elsewhere along the coast. It brings in a, an enormous amount of money, but so does uh, commercial fishing, outdoor recreation, fishing, uh, recreational fishing, hunting, things of this type. And there needs to be a proper balance. And what we're concerned about here at the National Wildlife Federation is right now this balance continues to be skewed 
towards the oil and gas. It's right. not giving proper consideration to other people who are being put out of their jobs, whether they sell seafood in a restaurant or, or, or they actually fish for some of the fish in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Greg Pallast over the weekend, uh, he's apparently just finishing up a book on, on scandals of the oil industry around the world, including the United States, and uh, it referred to uh, CP, CPB or NPR as the National Petroleum Broadcasting, you know, basically that they weren't accusing them of not telling the story um, because they're taking large donations. I know I can't turn on a TV uh, and see any, pretty much any channel and not see an ad for big oil, big gas, the coal, uh, the, the, the gas fracking companies, so-called clean coal, there ain't no such thing. Um, is this a way of basically handing money off to media organizations and saying, uh, please don't discuss our problems? Well, it's clear to me that the large contributions that the oil and gas industry is making to individual campaigns as, as they run for office uh, is probably making a big difference. They have much more of a capability with the big dollars that they bring in uh, to influence these members of Congress or prospective members of Congress than do uh, people like a, a recreational fisherman such as myself or, or a shrimp fisherman. Sure. Clearly they're biasing it that way. One of the things that concerns me is that so much remains hidden. I became extremely frustrated during the oil spill because even the information about how it was killing the birds that everybody owns, their, their, their public property, how, how the oil spill was impacting the birds, the sea turtles, etc., was being kept secret. We weren't being told how much oil was being spilled, how many dead sea turtles right. there were, how many dead birds there were. But to what extent is that the result of a, of a bought-and-paid media? Well, I like to think of the media as giving the information out there that uh, comes from all sides. And it took the media, actually, I have to give the media credit, because what happened uh, during the oil spill was a lot of them dug and dug and dug until finally the, the administration was forced and the oil companies were forced to give out some of this information. On my sleeves I stained red From all the truth that I've said Come by it honestly, I swear Thought you saw me wink, no I've been on the brink, so tell me what you want to hear First, it's the most anti-environmental House of Representatives in U.S. history, according to a new database compiled by Democratic lawmakers. As you heard, Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Lisa Jackson talked about this on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, noting that GOP lawmakers have now held over one vote a day to dismantle U.S. environmental and public health protections on the false premise that regulations cost jobs. Administrator Jackson also noted that yet another new poll shows the vast majority of Americans want the EPA to enforce clean air rules. You know, 75% of Americans, poll after poll, say that they want EPA to do its job and they don't want politicians to tell them what's healthy and safe for them. <laughs> yeah, and you. that latest poll by Public Policy Polling shows 75% of Americans want the EPA to establish even stricter limits on pollution and hold corporations responsible for the toxins they release into the environment. That's 75% of Democrats, right? No, that includes Republicans as well. And independents, if yes. I'm not mistaken. 
This agreement with the prior analysis surprised us. Thank you, billionaire Koch brothers. The billionaire Koch brothers, owners of one of the nation's largest oil and chemical conglomerates, along with being the founders and funders of the Tea Party and the climate change denial industry, the billionaire Koch brothers have done something good, funding a new climate research project at UC Berkeley, although the result is probably not what they were looking for. Analysis of these stations, we found a warming trend. Our result is very similar to that reported by the prior groups, who rise about 0.7 degrees Celsius since 1957. This agreement with the prior analysis surprised us. That was Berkeley physicist Richard Muller, the prominent skeptic who set out to disprove the findings of NASA and other prominent scientific organizations in a House hearing earlier this year presenting his preliminary results. Now the results are in, and he says they confirm that the world is indeed warming and his results invalidate several key climate change skeptic arguments. So let me get this straight. The Koch brothers funded a study meant to show that climate science uh, saying that the globe was warming was all a bunch Jahui, and their own study shows that the original science was correct and that the Koch brothers have been wrong all along. That is true. Well, then, indeed. Thank you. Coke brothers. Oh, but it gets better. Now the climate science denier community has thrown the Berkeley physicist under the bus, criticizing his methods, and are now very <laughs> upset that he said, quote, you should not be a skeptic any longer. They've gone now to the predictable spin cycle, which you'll find happens with most climate change denial industry people. First, they say it isn't happening. Then they say, oh, it's happening, but humans aren't responsible. Then they say, okay, humans are responsible, but it's too expensive for us to do anything. And finally, they start calling for billions of dollars of investment for geoengineering, basically anything, to keep using fossil fuels. So do we have any direct response from those folks who have been forwarding the Koch brothers' propaganda all these years? Like Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, who has famously said, Science is not settled. Everyone knows it's not settled. Or Rush Limbaugh, who has also said, We know it is a hoax. Or even Rick Perry, who very recently said, uh, The issue of global warming has been politicized. I think there are a substantial number of scientists who have manipulated uh, data. No, they've all been uh, pretty quiet. So they're not running around and publicizing this great new study from the Koch brothers for some reason. Nope. Imagine that. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. And that brings up, who, who put out this, uh, the uh, Center for, uh, it's the Competitive Enterprise Institute yeah, yeah. is what it is, which is an astroturf group put together by every company you've ever gotten an internet email about being evil, mm-hmm. basically. Okay, uh, this is their thing. They, they agree with Joe Barton. Here's their ad about how great CO2 is. It's essential to life. 
We breathe it out. Plants breathe it in. It comes from animal life, the oceans, the earth, and the fuels we find in it. It's called carbon dioxide, CO2. The fuels that produce CO2 have freed us from a world of back-breaking labor, lighting up our lives, allowing us to create and move the things we need, the people we love. Now, some politicians want to label carbon dioxide a pollutant. Imagine if they succeed. What would our lives be like then? Carbon dioxide. They call it pollution. We call it life. Okay. Um, carbon dioxide enables us to move the people we love <laughs> into a home. <laughs> okay, and this this is and then we uh uh found this ad. Mm-hmm. Did we find this ad, Billy? Yes, we uh <laughs> on uh for um, for uh for on a, 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 a website. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For uh believe it or not, for feces. And uh, let's play that. It's essential to life. You excrete it. Plants and bacteria consume it. It comes from animal life, from the food we eat. It's called feces, poop. And unless we allow it to pass from our bodies into the environment, we die. It's that simple. The act of defecating is essential to our metabolism. It enables us to create great art and to raise great kids, <laughs> to travel to the moon, to hit home runs, or simply to grow old with the people we love. Without exploding. <laughs> Now some politicians want to label feces a pollutant. Imagine if they succeed. What would our lives be like then? Feces. They call it pollution. We call it life. By the way, well, everything in that ad actually yeah. correct. <laughs> actually, it's true. It allows us to hit home runs. Do you guys remember this voicemail from a few weeks ago? I just heard um, Jim Hightower's bit about uh, airport security, and he was talking about um, you know terrorists giggling at us when we take our shoes off and and uh, having to submit to what he calls radiation scans, which is just blindingly ignorant. If you'd like to hear the whole message, it's posted at the end of the episode from October 12th. So immediately after uh, posting that episode with that comment, I received this email from Joseph, who says the gentleman that called in about the radiation issue is 100% incorrect. Anything that emits electromagnetic radiation produces radiation. Just because the dosage is small does not mean it isn't radiation, and he even admits it does send out radiation when he compares it to the sun. His argument is crazy, but that is the problem with ignorance. He then includes three links for me to follow and read more,、uh, which I will post in the show notes of this episode. And then his signature indicates、uh, that he's a PhD candidate in、uh, the Microfluidic and Interfacial Transport Laboratory in the Mechanical Engineering Department. So first, I received that email, and then I received this voicemail from another、uh, university professor. Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh. I wish people who would write. 
newspaper articles, blogs, pain pieces, or anything else, I wish these people would actually do some research. Which brings me to one of your callers from the last show, Michael from California. He was criticizing Jim Hightower for being ignorant. How ironic. Again, I wish. I wish he would take this advice and do a little research of his own, especially before ranting about other people. He says that Hightower's claim that we are subjected to radiation scans is, quote, blindingly ignorant, unquote. Michael says that with, quote, the backscatter scan, there's no radiation. Nothing penetrates your body. There's nothing going through your body. It bounces off of you and goes back to the scanner, and then somebody at a remote location looks at it, close quote. Now, of course, people can believe what they want. But then they shouldn't call in to inform everyone else unless they really know what they're talking about. Again, it takes less than an hour to find not only the article in question, but also the replies to the article by other researchers in the field and some basic facts about physics. The scanner in question is called a backscatter X-ray machine. And while it's true that the scanner's images are formed by the X-rays that bounce off of the target, that does not mean that all of the rays directed at the target do bounce off. The physical pr principle this technology relies on is called Compton scattering, or the Compton effect. And we have known since Compton himself did the experiments at the beginning of the 20th century that most of the radiation directed at the target penetrates, while only some of it bounces off. This is because the atoms that make up the target are mostly empty space. The radiation only reflects when it hits the nucleus, which is very small compared to the whole atom. And it's true that the x-rays that penetrate do not go all the way through your body, hence the need to do scans on both sides of the body. But that doesn't mean they don't penetrate and cause tissue, tissue damage. The strength of the x-rays is much less than when you get x-rays on a bone, but they penetrate nonetheless. As for the claim about how much exposure one gets as compared to radiation from the sun at 30,000 feet, this is also in dispute. The authors of the article in question did not get to test the machines themselves, but instead they had to rely on data given to them by the TSA. And there have been considerable controversy in the past year or so about whether the tests done by the TSA are reliable. So are the scanners dangerous? I don't know. I've read a lot, but I'm not in a position to have the kind of data or understanding of biophysics that I would need to make this judgment. There needs to be more research. But I doubt, though of course I could be wrong, that uh, Michael is in the position to know either. So I go back to my wish. I wish people would do their research and use their reasoning capabilities to understand the world around them. And as I said before, we are much too quick to criticize others without scrutinizing ourselves. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for everything you do. Bye. And that was actually an edited down version of a longer uh, voicemail that Mara left. If you'd like to hear the full thing, that will also be posted in the show notes for this episode. Now, before I had a chance to play that voicemail, I also received this voicemail. Hey, Jay, this is Michael again from Benicia, California. I uh, was one that commented on Jim Hightower's remarks about airport uh, airport scanning technology, and I just wanted to respond to what you said. When I, when I left you that message, I wasn't attacking your use of it on the show. Uh, I told you that I was disappointed to hear it on your show, but basically that was just because I hold the content of your show in very high regard. And what Mr. Hightower was saying, I don't hold in high regard. And my point is, in my initial responses, I realized that, that um, the way he characterized the, the scanners and, you know, what we have to do is not his drive 
is not his driving point. But, you know, I agree with, with what he was trying to say about, you know, overreactions to 9-11 and, and um, giving us civil liberties and, and the things that we have to go through on uh, when we're going through an airport. But my problem is that if you're making a good point, you shouldn't have to refer to, I mean, you shouldn't have to resort to things like basically spreading misinformation. And um, as far as calling them radiation scans, that at best is childish name-calling. And at worst, it's spreading, you know, misinformation that will create fear in people. It'll make people afraid to go through the, the airport scanners. And it should, if you're trying to make a good point and your point is valid, you shouldn't have to resort to things like that. So that's all I was saying. And uh, lastly, if you do want to know, if you do want to know more about how those scanners work, there's another episode, or there's another podcast called Skeptoid, and if you listen to episode 249, there's one section about, you know, the science behind exactly how those things work, and it'll explain it in great detail in only three or four minutes, and uh, it will make everyone feel better, especially after hearing Jim Hightower. <laughs> so, that's all. Keep up the good work. Thank you. So since we now had a source for Michael's original comments where he got that information, I sent Mara an email and asked if she would like to do a little bit of research. And this is what she came up with. Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh again. Um, I'm calling um, about the uh, voicemail from Michael from California. He said that his source about the uh, airport scanner radiation levels was from the skeptoid podcast number 249 produced and hosted by brian dunning so i wanted to say a little something about the information from that podcast dunning says that the x-rays can't penetrate your body but what he means or what he should mean is that they don't go all the way through your body like regular x-rays but that doesn't mean you're not absorbing any of the radiation so you are in fact absorbing radiation it's just not going all the way through your body then he says that regular x-rays deliver 100 microsieverts, while an airport scanner delivers only 0.02 microsieverts. Microsieverts are the units unit that the British usually use and are equivalent to a, a tenth of a millirem. So you have the same problem with microsieverts that you do with millirem. There's a unit of the amount of damage caused by radiation according to a standard model of the typical man, which is just, as I said before, a useful fiction. Then to find out what the damage will be for a for exposure on a specific occasion, you have to convert the number using some weighting factors because radiation affects different kinds of tissue differently. In addition, the figure of 0.02 microsieverts isn't correct. According to the study I referred to in my previous voicemail, an airport scanner delivers between 0.03 and 0.1 microsieverts per scan. And remember that you get two scans, one for the front and one for the back. This would bring the dose per security line visit to 0.2 microsieverts, uh, 10 times as much as what he was reporting. As was pointed out in a published response to the original study, in a response to that response, the original study's authors say, quote, we agree with Dr. Rez that there is considerable uncertainty involved in quantifying the doses emitted and absorbed when passengers are imaged with the backscatter scanners. 
This uncertainty could be reduced if the TSA allowed greater access to the scanners so that additional independent testing and direct measurements could be made, unquote. Lastly, I want to raise the question that I have not been able to find an answer to anywhere. The x-ray machines that scan your carry-on bags at the airport are shielded so that none of the radiation escapes. This protects the workers and the flyers, sort of like when the dental hygienist puts that heavy apron on your body and leaves the room during the x-ray. But the airport scanners clearly aren't shielded, since you can walk in and out and there aren't any lead doors. And there are no signs around indicating that it is in fact an x-ray machine and when it is on, like they have at medical facilities. So I'm wondering how much of the radiation from the two scans that each passenger gets leaks out. This leaking could presumably could affect the TSA workers as well as the other passengers in line. So instead of getting the radiation from just two scans, each passenger, depending on how long you have to wait in line, might get a lot more than that. May, or maybe it's completely negligible, but I would still like to know. Ultimately, it would be great if the TSA actually let independent researchers study these machines and we could maybe find out all of the real answers to all of these questions. But until we do, we should still all be committed to doing as much research as we possibly can. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. I didn't have a way of contacting Michael to get his response, so like the rest of you, I am waiting on pins and needles to see if we uh, hear back from him. That'll be fascinating. Like I said, if you want the full versions of all these voicemails, because they were all you know long and needed to be edited, uh, they will all be posted on the website. In the meantime, I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Nah H signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on February 14th, and Leonard L signed up uh, also for a leftist uh, yearly membership uh, a couple of weeks later on March 1st. So huge thanks to Leonard and Na and all of the members and donors who helped make this show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and helping spread the word of individual clips online through your social networks. It is uh, incredibly easy to do. All that is uh, right there in the show notes. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right